Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Aging Well, a podcast where we're going to be discussing tips and strategies and challenges of all those transitions that happen in our lives. Today, we're going to be talking about bringing children into our lives. I'm Monica Moore. I'm a GP with a special interest in mental health. And I'm Julianne White. I'm a mental health social worker who loves to talk about and reflect on important issues in life and hopefully make a difference. We've both been there, Julianne. We've both got children. What are your thoughts? I think as parents, this is what we're going to be looking at today, the transitions for the parents, the transitions for the couple, individually, collectively. Um, it, it can really be tricky at times. It's really hard. Um, and there's no one way of doing things, is there, Monica? Like, you know, what's right for me is not right for you. And I think as clinicians, the big, uh, the, the big gift that we've got to have or the skill we've got to have is that double listening um, but, you know, is that something you think in, when you reflect on, you're listening to these stories of parents uh, or mothers or fathers coming in? It's that listening deeply to their concerns. What do you think? Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's that difference between when you've had your own children and before you've, you know, BC, um, that I would try, you know, the advice was, you know, if a parent is concerned, because, you know, as a GP, you're bringing a child or you're bringing your concerns even during the pregnancy and and hoping for information and treatment and support and that advice about, you know, really listen to the parent and hear what they're saying because if they're concerned, there's something going on because they've got that, you know, sort of intuition. Mm. But then they've also got their own sort of stuff <laughs> going on, their own anxiety, their own history. So how do you sort of separate it all out? Um, and and I, I would call it even more than double listening. I would call it like mm. even sort of, you know, multidimensional listening where you yep. have to sort of listen to the various layers, you know, like if a parent is bringing a child in multiple times and you're kind of going, I'm just not quite sure what's wrong with this child. I think the child's okay, but I'm just not quite sure about this parent. Um, and, you know, and how to support them, how, how to do that, or even, you know, during the pregnancy. Mm. And because everybody reacts differently to, to similar situations we, we all do that thing about transitions, you know, bringing our own history. And I was thinking, you know, you, you were talking about how transitions fascinate you. And, um, and what, have, what have you noticed about this, this phase of life, you know, um, like both in your personal life and mm. your work? Look, what I found, I was really reflecting on this too about transitions. When David, my husband, and I decided we wanted to have children, I didn't think, oh, I wonder what parent I'll be. I wonder how we'll communicate. Oh, I wonder if our sex life will change. I didn't think anything like that. I just thought, let's have a baby. And we just had an awful lot of fun trying to have fun. <laughs> and, and then we were pregnant and that was just like, wow, that was amazing. You know, to be so amazingly unwell and sick and my body changed and all this stuff that went on. The first one was just like every week was just such a revelation every week was a process of changing and dealing with the changes and understanding my body and you know poor old David was sort of in the background going yeah okay okay how you know like his question about how are you today what's happening and so it was more about him on the outside me on the inside trying to include him so we didn't actually plan to go we want to have a baby we just said let's have a baby and we were one of those blessed couples that um, we fell pregnant very, very quickly and we had a bit of a tribe of kids. But it was when our first arrived, it was just this blissful state of parenthood that um, 
I don't think I consciously thought about I am now a parent. It was then this evo evolution into the role of a parent and being a mother. I hadn't thought much about motherhood as such and what mother would I be? What sort of mother did I want to be? And my perception of my mothering evolved over as I became a mother rather than planning for it. But Monica, what I notice is that some of the women that come and talk to me is they've been wanting to be mothers for a long time or they've thought about motherhood a lot for a long time or they've waited a while before they became mothers and it was really perhaps a different transition for them. It is, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, my uh, my daughter-in-law now and, and how when mm -hmm. I go to babysit, because I'm a grandmother, and how when I go to babysit, she'll say, oh, you know, she's... She's just had a leap or she's about to, you know, <laughs> enter a leap. And I've been a bit <clears throat> yep. puzzled about this leap language because, you know, when I had my kids, um, you know, there might have been that language around, but I, I don't remember hearing it. And apparently there's this amazing app, you know, which I'll include in the, in the resources later called Wonder Weeks, which is based on a book which describes children's neurological development and, and the sorts of things mm. that they're doing in their brain. And so how you as a parent or a grandparent can both collaborate and assist and not get in the way and understand their behaviours, um, which I just mm. think is amazing. And so all these things, you know, and when you're saying about planned parenthood, I mean, uh, you know, you were talking about this blissful motherhood and I'm thinking, I think I had bliss for about, all. Oh, Eight hours after my son was born and after that I just had sheer terror. Because even though I'm a GP, <laughs> I just thought, you know, there are so many things I don't know. Like, what do I do? Like, mm. he's, he's crying. What do I do now? And yes, I know you can do these things, but he's not stopping. Um, so I, mm. I did find that, you know, that whole thing learning on the job. And so it really helped me to relate to all the other people who would come in and they go, this is really hard. And like, I know, you know, that radical acceptance that it's not what mm. I wanted, it's not what I expected because, you know, our society doesn't prepare us. I mean, sure, there are lots of blogs these days and um, a lot of evidence around us, you know, that, um, that parenting can be really hard, you know, bringing a child into the world, even if it's a blended family, you know, where the children are no longer babies, they can communicate with words. It's still really hard. Yeah, look, I remember thinking, no, I'll have a baby and it won't change my life you know I'll be you know that baby I'll be one of those really amazing mothers and David was said yeah I'll be the same we've got cool parents and we were very young so we said yeah they'll fit in with our lives nothing will change really mm -hmm. oh god it, that was just so unrealistic everything changed by about three weeks it all changed dramatically you know I had inborn breast I had mastitis I was on antibiotics it was the middle of winter it was like it wasn't quite what I expected and you know, I had a child I don't think any one of my children have slept through the night although and that's another thing we're going to talk about later is that that notion of what sleeping through the night means because um and I will say this on uh, this podcast but I have eight children five boys and three girls and and I stopped going to some of the mothers groups because they go oh my baby slips through the night and I'm thinking oh none of mine did <laughs> none of mine did I don't know I didn't know what a full night's sleep was for about 16 years. And that's what I wanted to say to you about the transitions is that each child we welcomed into our family was a new transition because you're the mother of a, a parent of a first and parent of a second and then the third <clears throat> and all the issues that you had to deal with with each new little person that came into your life. So it's not just a single transition parenthood that, you're okay, the first one, you're a parent and then if you're blessed to have more children, you, you know what to do because each one is so uniquely different. 
Um, mm. Sure, you've got some skills that are okay, you know, to change nappies, you know, do the technical stuff and you know some of the mm. responsiveness stuff and you're prepared for it, but they're also uniquely different. They all have different ways of reacting to stimuli, to their own stresses, to the things going on in your own life. And I think our... Yes. Our communication or stresses going on in the lives of the parents definitely reflect on the children. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about, you know, sort of the the communication because I was reading um, Ellie Taylor's book, you know, Becoming Us, which is a lovely resource for parents when they first, um, you know, if you want to prepare and sort of think about all those issues that interfere with our communication and the stresses that occur within the couple relationship because I think Mm. that's something that, you know, we all talk about the baby and, and, you know, isn't it lovely to have a baby, but we don't realise, you know, she had these these five areas. I mean, I know you talked about, you know, the sex life, um, you know, the thing that, that brought the baby into the world. Suddenly, you know, whoa, there are these changes. Um, and But it's, it was also, you know, sort of things like housework. And one of the yep. lovely things in that book that I read is, you know, when she says, if as in that, you know, the traditional gender roles that we have, you know, we tend to have that the mother stays at home with the baby and the dad, you know, sort of goes out to work. If there's this assumption that it doesn't matter if the house is messy, but it matters to her, it's sort of like this is her workplace. This is where she's spending almost all of her time. I mean, I'm thinking of all those people in lockdown at the moment who don't get a chance to go out. You know, we're recording this when Melbourne is still in lockdown and people who don't get a chance to go out and who who are not having those breaks from the constancy of, of looking after a small um, being and mm. it, and it's just so hard and so maintaining some degree like even just a corner of a space that has some structure and order and calm in the middle of all this chaos can sometimes be so important. It was interesting Monica when I had such a busy family life um, and David and I both were because what was interesting too like uh, like you I'm a grandmother so I'm in my 60s so but when my littlies were little, so that's going back nearly 40 years, it was a, it's even though, you know, one generation or two generations back, it was a very different work environment. Like my husband couldn't get any time off work. There wasn't a paternity leave that he could take. You know, if he took annual leave, if he was lucky, um, he couldn't have a flexible workplace. So he had to work his shifts. You know, he was on rotating shifts. Um, so he couldn't be flexible if I needed him to stay home. So it was a, whereas I look at my sons who are our fathers and my daughters with their partners it's it's a very different world for a, a lot of the men and women who can have maybe negotiate we shouldn't say that that everybody can because a lot can't but there's more opportunities to have flexible workplaces so that there's a an opportunity to have more shared roles um, and I just know that Back then in the 80s, there was an expectation that uh, my husband went out to work and I did stay home and care for the children. Um, and it was expected that that was my job, the, the housework. And and I remember being really, really um, just not coping some days at all with the amount of demands that you would just get a job done and then, you know, the baby would cry or something would happen or the phone would ring or you, you know, had to do something. And I became quite, and I don't want to use this word um, disrespectfully, but a little bit obsessive um, around my kitchen bench. And if I, I had this beautiful green laminex, bright, you know, lovely shiny laminex bench. And for me, if I got that clear, completely clear before lunch and then again before tea, I had a successful day. And I broke my days down into these manageable units 
If I got the washing on the line, yes, that was a good day. It was a little bit of a high-five moment. I don't think we did high-fives back then, but if I did, I would have done a high-five. And then my bench was clean. And then if my glasses were in lines, you know, like nice and neat in the cup, you open up to get a glass out when your friend dropped in, the glasses were in, they looked tidy. Everything else could be a disarray, you know, like everything else was messy, nappies everywhere and stuff. This was before you could buy all these disposable nappies of cloth nappies and huggies and all that. Have you said that, you know, my, my, my son and, and his partner are using cloth nappies and so they are oh, doing wow. that whole <clears throat> rigmarole with yeah. the cloth nappies. Yeah, they're very environmentally aware. But, and I'm also thinking, you know, that the, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, what we know now about the brain mm. development of babies oh. and how important yep. it is for fathers to be involved because not only does it mm. help the fathers, you were talking about a study where they produce more oxytocin in their brains, the fathers, and it does all sorts of good things for their mental health and for their physical health. And apparently it does it for grandfathers as well, um, that, it, that fa- grandfathers who are involved with their grandchildren have less incidence of dementia and it, it appears to be related to the playing with the grandchildren, not the other way around you know that if they're demented they can't play um and um but you know even during lockdown or you know as part of the pandemic um coincidentally um my son got to spend more time with his with his little Mm. girl and so i'm i'm sure that that's made a benefit for all three of them um you know there's that lovely book by sue gerhardt um, why love matters, you know, and she goes into great detail about all that brain development and the cortisol levels and how it affects the development of the brain and how if the baby's left to cry, you know, it increases cortisol and causes brain changes that affect us throughout our lives. And um, and I just think, you know, knowing all of that now and um, mm. all that knowledge that we didn't have at the time, you know, how mm. in some ways it's both more scary because, I mean, I can imagine myself, I'm, I'm sort of the sort of person who will then kind of get anxious. Oh, my God, is my baby crying too much? Am I doing enough for the baby? You know, and sometimes we have to refer to that good enough parenting thing where you can get it wrong two-thirds of the time and your kid will still be okay. Like, can misunderstand what the baby's trying to tell you and, you know, hear those increasing cries of frustration. And, and so long as you're trying and you get it right a third of the time, it appears to be that, you know, the baby's attachment, you know, their sense of safety in the world and their ability to relate to other human beings will be okay. But, it, but isn't it sort of, you know, I can just remember the fatigue and how when I get fatigued, I just get so irritable. And I, and <laughs> you were getting, obsessive about the kitchen mm. bench I got really obsessive about the amount of water in the nappy bucket um, you know because if you had too much it wouldn't kill all the germs and if you didn't have enough he'd oh, get a rash really? wow. um, yep. and it became truly an obsession which we still laugh about um, but but you know what I mean and just recognising that it's just like an overflow of anxiety about am I doing the right thing and is my mm. baby okay and and, and you know, helps us to recognise that, you know, the more support we seek, the more support we accept, um, the better it is for ourselves and for our families and for everyone else. But it's hard sometimes. And that's a it's big hard. thing, Monica, isn't it? It's not, mm. a, it's not a sign of failure 
that perhaps we no. don't settle our babies or that we don't get it right or we're not, you know, responding to mm. our partners or our other family members' needs. Because I think there's this perception of, uh, you know, being, a, you know, the polarities. You're either a good parent or a bad parent in that middle space where I love where you say that if you do the best with the right intention and for that other little person get it right, you know, 30% of the time, is still a good whack of the time, isn't it? That we're getting it right for mm. them, we're responding to the right cry. We're responding to the right need. We're putting the right um, emotional cues out there for, you know, whoever's involved, you know, the child themselves or our partner. You know, I think there's this wonderful resilience in the human psyche that allows for, you know, if things are done with the right intention, that there's that forgiveness or that resilience of, um, that's around. That repair. And, yeah, um, we can yep, always repair. repair. Yep. We'd appreciate it if you would take a few moments to tell us what you think about this episode. Simply follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, and, yeah. and I do. I, I, I remember, you know, sort of losing it when my kids were toddlers and just yelling at them. And um, But, it, you know, and, and just the startled in me as well as them and then being able to repair it, mm. being able to apologise. And, um, mm. and, 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 you know, they say they can't remember, which is, which is a good thing, okay, because I have it vividly imprinted, um, you know, the sort of the times <laughs> when it happened. Um, but yeah, and, you know, we're all human. But it's, it's one of those things, you know, and you watch your own children doing it yep. and you think, wow, gee, they Can do Can I tell job. you one night? <laughs> I remember one night my poor darling husband had to do some night shifts. Like he was um, worked in a... Um, it was worked in IT, so but he did a night shift uh, this for quite a period of time, and I thought I was going to go crazy because I had these children that weren't sleeping. So I had three, and um, my oldest was um, sitting on the potty, so he was being potty trained. This is two o'clock in the morning. I had these horrible hours between two o'clock and four o'clock, where my children just thought it was time that Mum really enjoyed their company, and so we'd do this sitting on the couch. I had the oldest one on the potty, the little one sitting next to me with a storybook, and the other one on the breast, thinking. And I remember sitting there going, oh, look, I think I'm going to die right now. <laughs> just, and that, that Im- oh. image is imprinted on my brain as a severely yes. traumatic event. <laughs> that I thought, yes. oh, this is going to be me for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh. And then it was, oh. and then that time's now gone. And I'm now here sitting back as a grandmother. I've got nine, oh, t- yeah, ten actually, ten grandchildren. And it's just looking back and now thinking, Oh my goodness, that memory is still so vivid in my mind of that sense of, I think it was helplessness or uncertainty. Mm. Will this ever end? And like you said, the fatigue. Mm. And, and just another funny thing, when my oldest daughter had her first baby, she said, uh, she rang me up one night and she said, you know, mum, do you know sleeplessness is akin to water torture? And they do this, <laughs> you know, to prisoners and this is torture. Yes. And why aren't you here to help me? And I said, darling, I can't oh. be. I'm working. I can't be there today. And she lived like a couple of hours away. But um, and she just said, mum, it's torture. I'm going to die. This is not sustainable. And it yes. is, I think, that sense of, I think that's what brings us down. So taking the humour out of it, because at the time it's really, really, really stressful. And for any of mums or dads listening to us talking, um, I don't want to minimise, and I don't think either of us want to minimise any of that uncertainty or that um, overwhelmed feeling that we might have at two in the morning when you just think, oh my God, I've just got to get some sleep. But um, and, and the prayer and the hopes that you're actually not going to damage the, um, the emotional development of these little people. And thank God my children have no memory of that event. 
I thought, no, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, they're, they're, it's really quite funny, isn't it, how forgiving they are. And, and look, I, I, I had, I was lucky. I, I think I'm, you know, sometimes we try and seek help and we go to the wrong place and people, rather than being supportive, are critical. Um, and look, mm. we're humans. You know, we, we, sometimes we say things that we don't realise how damaging they can be. And so mm. I, I was very lucky in my mother's group that I joined that when my son, you know, would wake up every half hour, every hour and a half, every night, as he did from the age of four months until, you know, one year old, and we couldn't work out what was wrong with the poor kid because um, he, uh, he thrived during the day, wasn't too bad, but at night he would just wake up. And just that huge fatigue. And But I went to a group where people said, yeah, sometimes they don't sleep for a while it's just their brain isn't ready yet or something's happening and so long as he's healthy and growing and doing all the right things in other ways how can you get support (laughs) how can you get some sleep Mm. in um you know i was uh, the power of naps you know they talk about nana naps but Mm. no it's it's like get some sleep when your baby's sleeping like that's actually even you don't have to actually fall asleep just close your eyes and listen to some music or some waves or... Monica, you know, that's one of the most important points that you've just made then. Mm. And about the whole thing we've had that, you know, when you're trying to get a nap and the baby's down or the young person's down mm. and you think, oh, no, I've got too many jobs to do. I've got to clean up now so that when they're awake, we've actually got some order. Just shutting the eyes a little bit in a, a bit of a mindfulness moment where you just might have 10 mm. minutes of gentle mm. breathing and some mindfulness. Because what it is... And I really love you put me onto um, a resource the other day about sleep and I have been doing a bit of um, listening on my um, Audible books. But thinking that it's about brain restoration, if we change the thing from sleep to brain restoration, what is the purpose of sleep but to restore the brain? So sleep is not so that we can just lie in bed and put our head on a pillow and have pretty sheets and be really pretty in a nice bedroom, but to restore the brain. So you can do it in 10 minutes, a little bit of restoration. If you do some mindfulness, do some breathing, gather your thoughts and intentionally nap or restore your brain. I really love that as a concept rather than thinking, oh, no, I can't have a sleep. Um, but I can restore my brain for a moment. That's right. And you and you can do, and it's about sort of really allowing yourself to, to just close your eyes and just let your brain kind of drift a bit and, um, you know, and how to help to do that. I mean, you know, you did have eight kids and I remember we only had two, but mm. I had to, you know, I, I decided... Um, to take time off when my son was born until um, he was a bit older and so I didn't go back to work and like many people we had a little bit of conflict about our finances and I I think that that's again you know something that comes up um, you know with between couples and communication Mm. is key you know sort of recognizing that it's two people against the problem but but do you see that in your work I mean is that something in your life, I mean, it's something that you kind of are aware of? Oh, most definitely. And that personal professional, you know, that um, the similarities, you know, when you're often sitting with a client or with a a family, a couple, and thinking, you know, that you've got some close affinity with their story. But, um, yeah, Mm. well, David and I had quite a bit of, you know, we really had to budget quite tightly. And I was a nurse back then, so prior to 2000 I was nursing. So I did night shift, you know, five days a fortnight um, when my children were one. So I waited, I was home with them until they were one and then went back to casual work. Um, for about 12 years in between each child and it was really stressful it was really hard but I we had to to make ends meet 
And, and it was stressful because there were competing demands about, you know, what we prioritise for spending our money, how we spent it, um, how did we save. It was really hard to save. And I'm hearing this now with a lot of my clients and um, mums and dads. Actually, it's been really interesting. I had a couple the other day where both parents have chosen to do part-time work, so the parenting has been shared. They do a, um, a, a week a, across the fortnight each. So, you know, and I thought that I really reflected on that on that and thought what a really mature way if you can afford to do it and your workplace allows for it you know that's you know probably a lovely way of you know the child getting the best of both parents and you know you talked about COVID before my one of my daughters has just recently had a baby um, in the middle of a lockdown area in Melbourne so middle of COVID had her first baby but her husband is he had his two weeks paternity leave but now he's working from home so sure he's in his office working from home but she's got the confidence of knowing that he's around which is really delightful having that um that that constant the sharing of the roles and sharing of the finances do you think that'll continue like do you think that's going because you know how i was talking about the role of fathers and how um you know i think certainly for my granddaughter and for my son and his wife you know the the fact that i mean you know i'm not wishing that the Mm. pandemic was saying it's a good thing but i'm i'm just saying that for them it seemed to work out really well and he was able to work from home Mm. and so their financial situation i'm guessing um you know sort of stayed fairly stable and I'm thinking that but there is you know Annabelle Crabbe's um, The Wife Drought you know Mm. that book that she wrote which is where men don't get a chance to be involved in their children's lives simply because of the financial Mm. imperative and because workplaces Mm. don't allow them to there is the expectation Mm. that they're not going to work part-time that they're going to front up and they're going to be a man is to you know be at work and to stay late and go in early and and I think I wonder whether the opportunity to work from home, the opportunity to be flexible in that way, whether that's one of the positive effects of the pandemic. I mean, do you think it'll it'll last? I, gee, I hope so. I really do. Look, I, I agree with that. I think there will be some industries where that is possible, but the trades and very mm. hands-on um, skills oh, yeah. aren't probably going to be as transferable into the home. But I think for those that can, there'll be a bit more flexibility. Mm. One thing that I notice and I talk a lot with couples about is the... The, the massive transition that's happened in just a very short period of time between expectations mm. of fathers, expectations of mothers. You yeah. know, it was the expectation when I was having children, and I'm, I'm assuming with yourself as well, that we stayed at home. If men stayed at mm. home, I had a, a girlfriend who went back to work because her husband, she earned three times what he earned. So six weeks after they had the baby, she expressed her husband stayed home. But he was the only dad at the, at the parents' group. He was the only dad that turned up at preschool to drop, you know, when they had, they had an older child as well. He was the only dad that was a stay-at-home dad in our community and he was a real oddity and he was saying to me the struggle he had when the mothers who were friends of his from play group and mothers groups would come around, his wife got very jealous and he felt it was really uncomfortable to have women drop in to see him because, yeah. you know, the blokes that he knew were working and so the people that yeah. weren't working that had children to have play dates with his kids were women. And he really had to negotiate that space and he found it really, really challenging. And they often came to me to talk about how can we have open, respectful communication about, you know, if this girl comes around every single day to have a play date with um, the kids, well, is she really visiting for the kids or is she visiting you? So there was a sense of, is it's not quite the same for men and women. Yeah, isn't that interesting, mm. that, that sort of mm. tension that occurs? 
Um, and, uh, you know, it, it occurs in, in heterosexual relationships, but um, it's, it's interesting, I wonder, uh, you know, sort of when we think about that and what that says about us and, and, and how mm. do we negotiate that? It really is about communication, isn't it? It really is about Absolutely. that thing. And, and mm. you know, and I'm thinking about what you're saying about, you know, it's still a gendered society, but then we also have, you know, these changes that some, you know, men are sort of doing that. I mean, I I remember my husband, he would take Thursdays off um, and I would work on Thursdays and so he would have the kids on Thursdays. And uh, uh, he didn't take them to play group, but he did take them to various other activities Um and it, it's, you know, it's not something we discussed about, you know, whether he would have people come over. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering sort of what my reaction would have been. Interesting. I have to think about that. Mm. But, but I was thinking, you know, the other thing that's mm. really different that we haven't talked about yet is the effect of technology, like how technology has affected like the, the pluses and minuses of technology mm. now that we are bringing children into the world. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I was thinking, you know, have you seen that um, the still face experiment? There's a, a little um, YouTube clip. It's about nearly three minutes by a guy called Edward Tronick who did these uh, still face experiments where he gets a little baby and gets the mum to play with the baby. The baby's about 12 months old and then the mother just makes her face really still, like no expression, and just kind of stares at the baby, right? And the kid gets really distressed and he talks about why it is that this happens. And I was thinking about, um, you know, there are so many parents that I see, like I catch a lot of public transport, who are looking at their mobile phones or just sort of staring off into space, but mainly looking at their mobile phones and the kids trying to communicate with them or to engage them or, you know, sort of have that connection with them and they're not doing it. And I just wonder... Um, how much of that is having an impact on their brain development and then the kids given mm. the technology and what that does to their brain. What are your thoughts? Look, yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested in that um, experiment that you talked about, the still face, because it comes to mind, and this is something I mentioned to you the other day, if I had realised the impact, if I'd known about mirror neurons, the these little extensions on the end of the optic nerve that respond to movement and facial expression that in those early days, you know, when those beautiful little babies uh, got those very, very deep, dark eyes and just gaze up at you about, about two or three weeks as they start to focus and can, you know, you know that they're actually looking at you and they're turning to you and then you gaze deeply in their eyes and then make expressions and use the tone of voice. Oh, you're beautiful. Oh, we use a particular tone of voice that children can tune into. These mirror neurons are engaged when we make expressions and move and change, which teaches them that combination of speech and responsiveness and facial expressions. So they see smile and gentleness with a, a soft, gentle voice sometimes, hopefully. So they're learning, my need is being met in this voice and touch. So they're learning empathy. They're learning how to respond to facial cues through those, the activation of the mirror neurons, which happens in these really early days when they do the deep gazing. And when, so what I was reading was that these babies will hold gaze and then you know how you notice that after about 30 seconds they move their face away. And it's almost like those mirror neurons, a bit overloaded. It's a bit like the RAM on my computer that um, just shut down the other day because it was a bit overloaded. <laughs> you know, it was a critical moment too. And then... And then it comes back on again. So the mirror neurons are activated. They take in all this sensory data and input and then the babies look away and then they come back again and gaze. 
I wish I'd known when I was raising my children so that those moments, yes, I would have, we didn't have the phones back then, but perhaps I would have given more emphasis, given more notice, gazed more deeply, did more educative parenting, more purposeful parenting, mothering then. And maybe even as, you know, myself and my husband then gone, you know, given him some cues as to how he could actually influence that um, developmental stage or brain developmental stage for children. So that then does put a challenge in about technology, does the flat screen that's not 2D or 3D, it's a single dimension, does that still stimulate those um, learning pathways in the brain? Mm, we don't know. Yeah, there's there's so much that we're going to be learning. It's simply learning on the job, Absolutely. isn't it? It's, it's, it's kind of yeah. like the the whole idea about bringing children. You know, like we're learning on the job. And you know, when we were thinking about this podcast and and you know the sorts of things that we're talking about, and that whole thing about saying you know this guy called Bruce Filer who who has written a book recently called you know Transitions. Life is in the transitions, um, and he says that you know we're we're constantly evolving. You know, we're saying goodbye to the old and then there's this sort of messy middle where we're doing things differently and then you know we get into that stage of creating something new and so it's constantly evolving when we have children in our lives constantly changing we're constantly having to to transition from one sort of stage to the other and you know next time we're going to be talking about um you know the sorts of things that we personally but also as clinicians um have done you know to help people with all those emotions that come up because it's so Mm. important to recognize that um and to accept that it's hard it's really difficult and we get all the emotions you know we get grief we get fear we get sadness we get shame you know that we're not doing it right um we have all these sorts of you know things that we don't know what to do with and and what are the sorts of things that we can do to help us um to do that and i'm really looking forward to chatting to you about all the things that you found helpful and maybe we know what you use in your clinical work and maybe some tricky situations that you and I have dealt with that might be really helpful Mm. for people. So we really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Aging Well. And next time, we're going to be talking about our professional and also our personal experience of the sorts of things that we found helpful about bringing children into our lives. And I really wanted to thank the team in the Mental Health Professionals Network for their vision, for their support in making mental health knowledge so widely available both through the webinars and the podcasts and of course the groups that support us if you have any comments there any topics that you'd like us to discuss in our podcast we'd love to hear from you there are the usual things like linkedin and twitter and facebook and if you want to you can comment on the website if you go to the podcast you'll see where there's the area for resources underneath the podcast listing that you can fill in a survey so we'd love to hear from you So it's goodbye from me, Monica Moore. I'm a GP. And goodbye from me, Julianne White, a social worker. Thank you. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 